go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians and give our attention to God's Word this morning. We're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and picking up where we left off. So we're looking at verses 10 through 16. 1 Corinthians 7, 10 through 16. That's on page 955 of the Pew Bibles. And before we go to God's word, let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we approach your word this morning as your assembled church and we come in humility. We come asking for assistance. We ask that you would open our eyes by the power of your Holy Spirit. You would allow us to see the true meaning of this passage and also allow us to apply it faithfully in a way that honors you. So we pray this in faith and in Jesus' name. Amen. Ryan was studying to be an EMT, an emergency medical technician. And he had completed his classroom training. He had sat under countless hours of instruction and lectures from his instructors. He had read many textbooks. He had completed the uh, practice patient assessment where he was to take their breathing rate and pulse and vitals, blood pressure and things like that. He had plenty of practice administering CPR to the the practice dummy that was laid out in in the instructional area. He knew how now to deliver patients to the ambulance and then and safely bring them in and out of the back of the truck and how to stop bleeding by administering a, a tourniquet and, and how to uh, place an oxygen mask on someone. So he was, he was ready. And so this was his first time out on an actual call. He was going with a, a more senior, more advanced and experienced DMT named Steve. So they, they went out on their first call. And they arrived on scene, and it was in a third-story apartment building, and it was hot out. And so their first challenge was to lug all their equipment up three flights of stairs. No elevator. And they got to the top, and it was extremely hot. No air conditioning. And they walked into the apartment, and they were greeted by a man slumped on the floor, clutching his chest, shouting, You're not taking me to the hospital. And at the same time, they saw his wife screaming, and crying, please help him, please help him. And, and Ryan stood there for a minute and looked over at Steve, and Steve just said, go ahead. He was to take point. So Ryan ran over, and he, he knelt down next to the man and got his stethoscope out and was trying to, to listen to a heartbeat, but the man was waving him away with his arm, still insisting, there's no way you're taking me to the hospital. Ryan got the blood pressure cuff out and tried to put it on the man's arm, but the man fought even harder and actually knocked Ryan in the nose and and stunned him, giving him a bloody nose. At that point, he passed out. And so the next challenge was to transport this uh, 280-pound man down three flights of stairs on their own. So they did that. And after they got in the ambulance and they were on their way to the hospital, Steve turned to to Ryan and he said, it's a little different 
in the field compared to the classroom, isn't it? Ryan said, yeah. And then Steve quickly added, but you need both. You need to know the right thing to do, and you need to know how to apply it so it's useful in the field. You need both. In this passage, Paul is addressing the topic of marriage and divorce. And Paul's doing the same thing that that Ryan had to do. Paul is taking the instruction, the the commands from Jesus' incarnate ministry, from Jesus' teaching ministry, and then he has to apply it in the field to the church in Corinth. And the church is called to do the same thing today. We have the textbook. We We have the classroom instruction directly in front of us. It's now our challenge to apply it in the field to real life, to real people, to real situations. There are going to be times when we have some specific and unique marriage and divorce issues that are not directly addressed in Scripture. We have to take this and apply it. So let's look at our passage 10 through 20, or excuse me, 10 through 16. Just a few short verses. And Paul writes this. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Before we even begin to dive into the verse-by-verse walkthrough of this passage, we're going to have to clarify a couple of potentially confusing phrases. And I want you to look at verses 10 and 12. Paul, and there, if you have the ESV, they're in parentheses. Paul says, not I, but the Lord. And then in verse 12, it says, I, not the Lord. So this does not mean that when Paul writes, not I, but the Lord, he doesn't mean, now, this is the part where everybody reading and, and hearing this letter in the church needs to really sit up and pay attention because this is from Jesus, and and this is the binding part of what I'm saying to you. And then when he says, uh, I, not the Lord, that he doesn't mean, but this part now you can kind of sit back and tune out and start to, to let your mind wander, because this is just my opinion, and it's not necessarily binding for, for the church. That's not what he means. When he says, not I, but the Lord, it means he is quoting directly from the teaching ministry of Jesus. These are the words of Jesus Christ spoken 
while he was teaching his disciples on the earth. And then when he says, I, not the Lord, he means that what he is writing is not taken directly from Jesus' oral teaching, but instead is from himself, and himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ, sent by Jesus Christ, and tasked with the job of writing down and codifying by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit what is authoritative for the church. He's simply putting a footnote there and making sure that everyone understands that what he's saying is is not uh, what Jesus was saying. He's making sure that people understand that he's not trying to pass off what he's saying as as Jesus' teaching. But the whole letter is written with full apostolic authority as one who's been commissioned to write the New Testament. So for us, the the bottom line is this. This is 100% Bible. And this is 100% binding for the church today. I I don't want us to get the impression that there's some kind of two-tiered levels of teaching here. Okay, I've heard that taught, I think preached a couple times. That's not it. That's not it. So now that we've got that out of the way, let's look at verses 10 and 11. And we've got to remember the, the immediate context. We do not start at verse 10. Verse 10 comes after chapter 7, 1 through 9. And if you remember, he was talking about this issue, this teaching that it gained acceptance within the church, that somehow uh, it was a good idea for everybody to remain celibate, even for those that were already married. Somehow this teaching had gained a foothold. So Paul addressed that. He set the record straight in 1 through 7. He said, no, that's not it. Continued to have regular relations. He addressed the unmarried and the widows in verses 8 and 9. And now he's going to talk to the married who might be tempted to separate and divorce in order to practice celibacy. And we might think, well, that seems really strange. Now think about it. If that teaching had gained acceptance, it probably wouldn't take too long for a husband or a wife to say, you know what, I think this whole celibacy thing would be a lot easier if we weren't living under the same roof. I I think I wouldn't be as tempted if, if we weren't sharing the same bed every night. So, so maybe we should just get divorced and that'll be the end of it. We can still be friends and we're still brothers and sisters in Christ. This context also helps explain why the woman is addressed first in verse 10. By and large, wives might have been more willing to agree to this teaching of abstinence within marriage. Paul tells them, don't do that. That's not the answer. The wife should not separate from her husband. Paul does not want the believers in Corinth to think that divorce was an acceptable means to achieve this goal of overall celibacy and abstinence. And look what he's doing. He's appealing to the teaching of Jesus. He's appealing to the classroom instruction, Jesus' oral teaching during his incarnate ministry, but he's applying it in the field. This question, this specific situation, is not directly addressed in the teachings of Jesus. Jesus did not address the situation where husband and wives had bought into this, or at least one partner has bought into this teaching that it's, it's good for all people to remain abstinence, and so here's what you should do in that situation. He doesn't get that specific. So Paul is taking that and applying it in the field. He appeals, we're going to look at later, Matthew 5, Matthew 19, 
and he's applying it. He's doing some field work. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. If, if a woman has divorced or is in the process of divorcing her husband for these reasons, Paul says, don't, don't make it worse. Don't, don't think that you can now find somebody who's on the same page and both of you now can be married and celibate now that there's no conflict. He says, no, 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 no. No, don't do that. Just remain signal, single or get reconciled. And then the last part of verse 11, same thing goes for the husband. If, if there's a husband who's seeking divorce as a way of escaping the, the temptation of marital relations, don't do it, husbands. Don't divorce your wife. That's, that's not a good reason to divorce. Now, isn't it interesting in the con- to see these verses in context? Because for the most part, the church usually does this. They go here, and they take these verses out of that context, and they look at them and try to create policy based on those verses alone, without the context. Isn't that interesting? Let's keep moving. Verse 12, mixed faith marriages. He said, to the rest I say this. Now the rest means those who find themselves in a mixed faith marriage. Now we understand as the church, and the church has understood for a very long time, believers marry believers. We are to marry in the Lord. And so you might scratch your head and think, well, what's, what's happening? Didn't they marry in the Lord? Let, let's look at the context. These are first-generation Christians. Some of these couples married as unbelievers. They've not heard the word preached. None of them had grown up in the church. None of them. This was unplowed ground. And so it's not uncommon in this context to find a marriage where one person, as a result of the proclaimed word and the Holy Spirit calling them to faith, becoming a a believer and a follower of Christ, where the other one was not. And the result is now a mixed faith marriage. Now we could say, well, is it believer and unbeliever? Yes, but the, the unbeliever was probably involved in some of this Corinthian pagan worship. They weren't completely atheists. They believed in, in the pagan gods. But the, the bottom line is you've got a believer and unbeliever, a mixed faith marriage. So now the church was seeking guidance. What do we do? What do we do here when you've got a mixed faith marriage? And we might think, well, that's an easy call. Hold on a second. Is it? For them? Was it an easy call for them? Because on the one hand, Jesus taught that he demanded ultimate allegiance. You remember he said things like following him would create division within family. Look at Matthew 10, 34-37. He says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. A person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So, so they had that teaching. And they also had Paul stating that becoming one flesh or entering into that one flesh union with an unbeliever outside of marriage defiled the person. Chapter 6. We just looked at that. They understood that. No, we're not supposed to enter into a one flesh union with an unbeliever. And then they were most likely familiar with the teaching that believers should always marry in the Lord. If we can look at 2 Corinthians 6, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, and then even just later on in our chapter, she's free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. So I, I think that was part of, of the understood uh, teaching of the church, that they were supposed to marry in the Lord. So given that context, now that a believer suddenly and, and uh, unexpectedly finds himself in this 
mixed faith marriage, what do they do? Do they have to leave by divorce? Is this dishonoring and defiling? Or is this honoring to Jesus? The question was not directly addressed by Jesus in his classroom teaching, his incarnate ministry. So this requires some field work. Verses 12 and 13, Paul says, stay married. Stay married. Here's the answer. Here's the result of the field work. Stay married. If they continue to stay married to you, then stay married. Continue means consent to be with you. If they, if they agree, if the unbelieving spouse agrees, wants to stay married, then you also stay married. He gives his reason in verse 14. He says, the unbelieving spouse is made holy because of the believing spouse. And then he says this, otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. What did he mean by all that? What does he mean by made holy? Well, he doesn't mean saved and sanctified in terms of being a believer. He doesn't mean that if you've got a mixed faith marriage, well, then the, the spouse, the unbelieving spouse, automatically becomes a Christian. And, and he doesn't mean that the children, well, they're automatically saved. That, that's not what he means. So it's a different use of the word holy here. He's talking about the directional flow of spiritual influence. Remember, immediately before this section, he just described the case where uh, a believer was entering into a one-flesh union with a prostitute, chapter 6. And he said, that's defiling. The directional flow of, of spiritual influence flows from the, the unbeliever to, to the believer in such that it's defiling. It, it, it's not, they're not made holy. It, it, it's sinful. It's, it's away from God. And so the believers found themselves in, the, in these relationships. They, they were wondering, is that going to also defile me? Is, am I going to, is that the directional flow? Is Because I'm having this one flesh union with my unbelieving spouse, is that going to make me unholy? And we have to admire their, their faithfulness to Jesus Christ, the lengths to which they were willing to go. They, they put their allegiance to Christ above their allegiance to their spouse, and they're saying, I'm willing to do whatever you want, Jesus. But Paul says, no, don't do that, because the directional flow of spiritual influence operates differently in marriage. In marriage, it's the believing spouse, and the directional influence flows that way, so that their unbelieving spouse continues to be acceptable before God. The result is a marriage that is valid and acceptable. He's telling them, yes, you can live in mixed marriages, faithfully, and to the glory of God, don't get divorced. I think we can even common sense kind of instinctively pick up on that. I, I hope so. Even without that explanation, I mean, we, we see the differences in chapter 6. Paul's talking about sexual immorality. He's talking, Paul's talking about someone who, who joins himself to, to a prostitute. One is sinful, the other is instituted by God. One is evil, one is good. Marriage between a man and a woman is good, right, and true. Sexual immorality is sinful. So of course the, that, that directional flow of influence is going to be in the opposite direction. And then in the second half of verse 14, Paul points to something that the church would have already been aware of and, and uses it to, to bolster his argument and kind of, kind of show them by illustration that what he's saying is true, the status of children from at least one believing parent, they are also holy. 
And this is based on the fact that God has always dealt covenantally with his people. Always. Consistently. Throughout scripture. All of Abraham's children received the mark of circumcision. Whether or not they grew up to be in the faith or not. They were in covenant. Likewise, in the New Testament, God's covenant extends to the children of at least one believing parent. Children are born into the visible covenant community, and therefore they rightly receive the covenant sign, baptism. So Paul's using this self-evident truth that children of believers appear in the visible covenant community to show that marriages between believers and unbelievers are holy and acceptable to God. In verse 15, we see divorce permitted. If, however, he says, the unbeliever wants out of the marriage, let it be so. Separates here means to divorce, to leave, to to exit. So the Bible teaches that if an unbeliever wants to initiate a divorce with a believer, in other words, leave marriage, sometimes it's referred to as desertion. We see that term used. Then fine. But the believer is not to initiate a divorce just because they find themselves in this, in this mixed marriage. When Paul states, uh, in such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. That word enslaved means bound. So he's saying, if, if this happens, if the unbelieving spouse wants out and, and, and divorces and leaves, then the remaining faithful believing spouse is not bound. In other words, they're not to, to remain, they don't have to remain single the rest of their life. They're, they're not bound. They're free to marry in the Lord. God has called you to peace. He's, he's wrapping up this, this section and he's saying, if at all possible, you are to live at peace with your current spouse. That's, that's the goal here. If they divorce you, well, you don't have any control over that. That's, that's their decision. But if they're willing to continue, then you should be too. And then finally, verse 16, once again, the overall context of this passage is that believers are not to abandon a mixed faith marriage. So given that context, these are encouraging words. They're encouraging words. They're not pessimistic words. They're not Paul saying, well, you know, who knows if you're ever going to make an influence or not. No, they're encouraging They're saying, you never know. It could very well be that you are used by God in a way that makes an influence on your unbelieving spouse that they come to faith. God can do that. Stay in your marriage. They may not be an unbeliever forever. Paul's in the field. This is not classroom instruction. He's in the field. If we were to summarize this passage, we'd say something like this. Husbands and wives should not seek to separate from one another in order to remain celibate. This command is grounded in the broader biblical teaching that husbands and wives should remain married for life. Mixed faith married couples should remain married if possible. The directional flow of spiritual influence extends outward in marriage to the unbelieving spouse and also downward to the children. Yet, if an unbeliever initiates a divorce in a mixed-faith marriage, the believer is to consent and is free to marry in the Lord after the divorce. Paul concludes the passage by reminding the believers that they are called to live in peace and as far as is possible with them, to live at peace with the spouse they are currently married to. That's some good field work. That's some apostolic field work right there. Paul applied Jesus' teaching in the field when something came up that was not directly addressed 
in the classroom. We need both. This passage, in addition to Jesus' teaching in the Gospels, which we're going to get to in just a moment, this passage is where the church goes when it wants to know what the Bible says about divorce and remarriage. This is where the church turns to. When they say, what what is the Bible's teaching on divorce and marriage? They open their Bible and they turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. This has some of the most explicit teaching on this topic. But it doesn't cover everything, does it? So we still have to do some field work. We need to apply it. We need to know it, and we need to apply it. So that starts with knowing it. We want to make sure we know what this is saying. We need to to know the the basics of what the Bible is teaching on marriage and divorce. Like the EMT or any other job, if you don't know the basics, if you don't know the fundamentals, in other words, if you don't have the classroom instruction down, you're going to be a disaster in the field. You can't apply in the field what you don't already know. So we've got to start with knowing. So in addition to our passage, let's bring in a couple passages from Matthew. Matthew 5. 31 through 32. This is what Paul is referring to in the first couple verses. In verses 10 and 11, this is what Paul is is citing. Jesus said, It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. The first thing we need to understand is that last last phrase. Whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Let's not pull that out of context and start making our own little rules. That's talking about a woman who has divorced unlawfully. It's not just saying if anybody marries any divorced woman, then that's adultery. That's not it. That's how it's taught sometimes. But that's not it. So first of all, let's, let's excuse ourselves from that error. And now let's look at Matthew 19, 3 through 9. This is the same teaching. It's consistent, but it's a little more expanded. And it involves interaction with the Pharisees. It says, And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. So these Pharisees came up to him and wanted Jesus to weigh in and give a decision on some of the popular teaching of the day. Some of that teaching including, included divorcing your wife for any reason, without, without really any cause at all, at the drop of a hat. 
And Jesus says, no, uh, a husband and wife, I hear you, I hear what you're asking, but what I'm telling is, you is they shouldn't divorce. You're asking how or what's the grounds or, or for what reason. I'm saying they shouldn't. When a husband and wife marry, God joins them together in a one flesh union in a way that is a mystery and in a way that cannot be uh, undone. They, they are no longer two. Their status as people literally changes. They are no longer two, but one. Don't tear apart what God has brought together. That's his answer. And then somebody said, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. What, what about Moses? What about Moses? Remember, he, he said we could divorce. He gave her a certificate and he sent her away. Jesus says, um, yeah, well, that, that was because of your hardness of heart. He did that to make divorce more difficult. He did that to safeguard and, and for protection of the woman and for a variety of reasons. He said, but that, that's not what this is about. He said, the intention is that marriage is for life. Marriage is forever. So that's our first basic. That's our first fundamental that we need to understand. Number one, God instituted marriage to be between one man and one woman, and it's designed to be for life. Now, I'm not saying this always happens, even among believers. I'm saying that this is the bar. This is the command. This is the standard from God. One man, one woman for life. That's how God instituted marriage. That's how it's to be faithfully lived out. And as believers, we need to be solid on this understanding, this biblical understanding of marriage. We, we need to have Matthew 5 welded to our hearts and our minds. We need to have this down, because if we don't have this down when we say, I do, what's going to happen when we get to the field? If we haven't memorized and internalized what, what God says authoritatively about marriage, when we're in the air-conditioned classroom and, and the stationary practice dummy is right there and we have all the time in the world, what's going to happen when we're on the third floor and it's 100 degrees and we've got a 51-year-old male, uh, 280 pounds, who's combative in year seven of our marriage? It's going to be a disaster. It's going to be much more difficult. How many believers, believers enter marriage with this non-negotiable attitude that marriage is for life? Or, or to put it another way, one person thinks there is this red button in the back of my mind, way, way in the back, and it's labeled divorce. And it has a glass cover on it so that it can't accidentally be pushed. And I hope our marriage has what it takes, but I've got to tell you, if in an emergency the time came, I guess I might have to break the glass and press that button. Whereas another person thinks to themselves as they enter into marriage, there is no button. It doesn't exist. My spouse and I are not even going to entertain that thought. We're not going to talk about it. We're not even going to tease each other about it. We're not even going to consider it. It doesn't exist. 
all things being equal, which marriage do we think has a better chance of surviving? When we marry someone, we take vows before God and witnesses, and those vows are for life. What God has joined together, let not man separate. And man includes the husband and the wife themselves. It includes them. So marriage is designed for life. That is basic number one. But the Bible allows for two exceptions. Jesus said, except on the ground of sexual immorality, and Paul allowed it if the unbelieving spouse initiates a divorce. In other words, wants to leave the marriage. We call that desertion. So these are the only two biblically lawful ways to end a marriage. So biblical basic on marriage number two is even with the biblical grounds for divorce, marriage is not designed to be easy out. There was a, a man that was taking his son to a, a ball game. He was finally old enough where he thought he could appreciate it, he could keep score, he could get the most out of the experience. And they drove into the city, they, they got near the, the ball field, almost a, like about a block away, and, and then he turned into this tiny little lot that had buildings on each side and then a small alley with buildings in back, and he pulled in and he rolled down the window and he said, I want easy out, easy out. And the attendant said, easy out? He said, easy out. He said, all right, that's going to be another 20. So dad got another 20, paid him, they left the car, and the son says, dad, what's easy out? Dad said, you see, after the game, everybody's going to get out at the same time, and everybody's going to want to leave, but some people hang around, or we might want to leave early. And so when I say easy out, they're going to position my car at the end or, or where I can find a path so that when we walk up, we can just get our, get our car and drive right out onto the road and leave. If we don't have easy out, then, then somebody might be in front of us, and then we have to wait. And it might be a long time. So that's what easy out is. It allows us to just get in our car and drive off. Even with these exceptions, God did not design marriage to be easy out. He did not design marriage to just allow a husband and wife to drive off. Remember, if, if, if one spouse is unfaithful, let's say that, that criteria is met, there's marital unfaithfulness, it doesn't mean the other spouse has to initiate a divorce. They may, lawfully. It's not a sin. But the Bible does not command it. I, I know of couples that have experienced the sin of adultery. Some have remained together as, uh, as couples, as husband and wife, others have not. As soon as the adultery is exposed, our first response should not be to grab our keys and peel out of our marriage. It depends. Is, is the offending spouse repentant? Are they literally on their knees asking for forgiveness? Are, are they broken before the Lord? Do they, do they recognize the gravity of, of what's happened? Are they... Are they doing everything they can to, to immediately cut off the relationship, to, to do whatever it takes? Or are they unrepentant? Do they have no intention of breaking off the relationship? And it's, it's ongoing. What a difference that makes in, in our response. So even with the biblical exceptions to, do, to marriage, um, to divorce, it's never intended to be easy out. So those are the basics. I hope we... We understand those. 
Those are given to us in God's word. They're fairly explicit. God instituted marriage between one man and one woman. It's designed to be for life. And then even with the biblical grounds for divorce, it's not to be easy out. So that's what the textbook teaches us. This is what we've got from God. Those are the basics. Now it's time for some field work. Let's apply what God has given to us to some questions and cases that are not directly addressed in Scripture. Some are easy, some are not so easy. So here's an easy one. Should I date an unbeliever? Sometimes this comes up. Should I date an unbeliever? The Bible does not have a verse or command that speaks directly to this issue, so it requires some field work. We do understand that the Bible teaches that believers are to marry other believers. We looked at those verses a moment ago. 2 Corinthians 6, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And then 1 Corinthians 7, marry only in the Lord. So we get that. Since dating is something that is done with the intention of leading to marriage, right? As believers, we're, we're not dating so we can have a fling. We're not, we're not dating so we can have some fun right now and then later on maybe find somebody else. We, we're dating to seek a relationship that, might, that may lead to marriage. So since that's the case, believers should not be dating unbelievers. If you know that this is a path that leads to marriage, and you know that the Bible commands unbelievers not to marry unbelievers, then, then there's no reason to be dating unbelievers. Somebody says, oh, no, 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 what about verse 16? Uh, how, how do you know that, that, that your witness might not help them to become a believer. So I'm, I'm going to date this unbeliever and my plan is by the time we get ready for marriage or maybe soon after that, then they'll become a believer. Um, no. Uh, look again. Verse 16 is for those who are already married. Okay, That doesn't work. What, what that person is describing has a street name. It's called missionary dating. And that's not it. That, the Bible does not condone that. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. So dating unbelievers, no, that's a fairly easy field work application. How about this one? Can a divorced man serve as an officer of the church? This comes up a lot. 1 Timothy 3, 2, through 2 and 12 says, Therefore an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. Let a deacon each be the husband of one wife. So some read this first. There have been some in the church, and even today, that read this verse in 1 Timothy and say, Well, that's it. If you've been divorced, don't, don't tell me the details. I just need to know if you've been divorced, yes or no. And if the answer is yes, well, then you're disqualified from service. But I don't think that's solid field work. The phrase in 1 Timothy 3 could also be translated as a man of one woman. The context of the requirements of both of these officers is that they are currently meeting those criteria at the present time. Is the man of one woman man? For example, it doesn't matter if someone in the past has been unable to teach. What they want to know is are they able to teach now, at the present time? Because if you think about it, none of us, I mean, all of us at some point are unable to teach, right? No, at the present time. The qualification. A man of one woman means that the man is currently a one woman man. He's married to only one woman, faithful to that one woman. If someone had more than one wife, and believe it or not, that was a thing in the first century among the Jews. Or if the man is known to be unfaithful to his wife, have we seen that in 1 Corinthians? Yeah. Yeah. 
uh, prostitute visits, keeping mistresses. Yeah, that was the context to which this was spoken. If those things are true, then he's not qualified. If, however, a man has been married in the past, but lost his wife due to death, or a lawful divorce, or has been reconciled to her, or the exceptions that we just looked at, if they've been in a mixed faith marriage where, where the unbeliever initiates a divorce, then those things are not disqualifying. So what counts is a new creation in Christ and walking faithfully at the present time regarding his current marriage. So therefore, men seeking office in the church should be evaluated carefully on a case-by-case basis. And the bottom line is, does divorce automatically disqualify someone? The answer is no. They should be evaluated carefully on a case-by-case basis. But to conclude, if a man has been divorced for any reason, they're disqualified. That goes, we realize, that goes beyond the teaching of Jesus. Jesus offered this, this lawful criteria. So that, that, that position goes beyond the teaching of Jesus, it goes beyond the scripture, and that's just not good field work. Well, those are fairly easy. Now let's get to one that's not so easy. Because we might think, okay, straightforward, but no, it, it gets sticky pretty quickly. For example, since divorce is allowed under certain criteria, unfaithfulness, or if an unbeliever initiates a divorce, um, someone might say, well, let's define that second criteria. What does desertion mean? Well, if an unbeliever initiates a divorce, is that what it means? Yes, that's, that's clearly stated in, in the passage. What about if someone uh, moves out of state and lives with someone and they never come back, even though they don't initiate divorce? Is that desertion? Sounds like it to me. How about moving out and disappearing for years and then showing up again? How about just for a few minutes? Or, or how about if they, they leave for a few weeks at a time and then they come back and they say they're sorry and then they leave for a few more weeks and maybe a month and they come back and say they're sorry. What, where's the line there? Is that desertion or, or not? Is that biblical grounds for divorce? How about abuse? Abuse is not specifically listed in the, in the textbook. So it requires some field work. If we've got a spouse that's sending his, his wife and kids to the emergency room on a monthly basis with black eyes, bruises, and broken bones, is, are we going to sit there and tell the woman that biblically she has no grounds for divorce? Is that good field work? At a minimum, he's demonstrating that he does not love her, he's not protecting her. Is, is that breaking of the marriage vows, is that considered desertion? Is that biblical grounds? And if abuse, what about verbal abuse? If we're going to allow abuse, is that biblical grounds? What is verbal abuse? Let's define that. Is that, is that insults? Is that name-calling? Is that complaining? Is simply raising your voice for any reason? Is that biblical grounds for divorce? Do you see how sticky it gets? Very quickly, it gets extremely difficult in the field. And you think, well, at least the other one's clear. Unfaithfulness. Is it? That can get sticky too. What about just a, a secret relationship? Having lunch with someone, developing a, a, an intimate relationship. 
How about long, passionate hugs? How about hugs and kissing? And we could walk down the, the physical scale and graduated steps all the way to unfaithfulness. Where's the line? You see how sticky it gets. Even though Paul writes extensively on the issue of marriage, divorce, and remarriage, it does not mean that all questions on these topics have clear answers when you get into the field. I want to close with a warning and then a, a possible solution. Here's the warning. Some people acknowledge this stickiness. Some of those things I just mentioned, they say, well, yeah, I'm not sure what I'm going to do about that. Some people are so uncomfortable with that stickiness and, and trying to, to use Scripture on a case-by-case basis that they would rather have the security and the, and, the, and the grid of something more firm. And so what they've done is they've developed flowcharts. Maybe you've seen one of these. Flowcharts that have these little text boxes asking questions that require a yes-no answer. If yes, then go to the next one. There's a line with an arrow, then you go to the next box. And the way these work is they, they funnel everybody down to these directives, and they read like, um, must remarry, or may not remarry, or must be reconciled, or, or a variety of different directives. And that's the only option, is to follow the flowchart, the man-made flowchart, by the way until you reach the directive. There is no way to incorporate, incorporate every single sticky nuance of, and, and, and detail of these, of these cases. So no flowcharts. Let me give you an example. There were two 17-year-olds that were just finishing up their senior year and, and the girlfriend became pregnant and they were both professing believers and so they ended up getting married. They wanted to do the right thing. They were both feeling pressure from parents, so they, they got married. But then very quickly, the, the man decided that this was not what he really wanted, and he was not ready for the responsibility of being a husband, and let alone a father. And so he began doing his own thing uh, on the weekends, and then doing his own thing during the week, so he was he was in and out, and he was he was being uh, making her life very uncomfortable. Um, and so, after a short time, she divorced him. And then a, a month or two later, she learned he was already living with with a new girlfriend. So that's how that ended. And then within a year or so, her faith began to deepen. She she. Uh, committed herself to, to weekly worship at a faithful church. She, she grew. She met a man who was a godly man. They initiated a very respectful relationship. They, they grew to love one another, and they got to the point where they were ready to be married. This is a couple years later. So they went to the pastor, and the pastor didn't know all the details. And so he, he asked them about their past, and they laid it out. And he said, okay, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. And he pulled out the flowchart. He said, so you were a believer? Yes. And he was a believer? Yes. And you don't have any proof that he was unfaithful? Well, I mean, no, but it's okay, I, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I don't want any part of this. This was an unlawful divorce. You were a believer and you didn't have biblical grounds. And young man, I have to cancel you. You're, you're committing adultery if you marry her. No flowcharts. No flowcharts. Apply scripture 
in the field with a generous helping of grace. We, we follow a God of grace, yes? Salvation is by grace, right? Receiving something we did not deserve. Sinners receiving forgiveness by grace from a merciful God. God in our sin, Scripture says, while we were yet sinners, He died for us. When we turn in faith to Jesus Christ, we're receiving grace for Him. When we repent and turn to Jesus Christ, God promises, I will forgive your sin, I will receive you into the kingdom of God, and from that day forward, you are forgiven, past, present, and future, and you are not going to experience the condemnation that you deserve for your sin. So we serve a God of grace. No flow charts, especially if there are things in a person's past that were done while they were young, immature, unbeliever, or barely a believer in this case. Maybe we're not sure. Even not all professing believers possess Christ. We understand that, right? Not everyone who professes Christ possesses Christ. So we need to be careful when we do our field work. If there is confession and repentance, if there's a hunger and thirst for righteousness, a desire to live out the rest of their life in obedience to Christ and His Word, that sounds like they're headed in the right direction. When it comes to marriage, the bar has been set. One man, one woman for life. That's the commandment. And when it comes to divorce and remarriage, each instance should be taken on a case-by-case basis. We need to know the right thing to do, and we need to know how to apply that so it's useful on the field. Amen. Father, we thank you that you have given us your word, and we freely acknowledge that Scripture does not explicitly teach to every single situation that we encounter in real life. We understand that we are to take your word and to apply it with grace as faithfully as possible. Father, we thank you that you have created marriage, that you have instituted it for one man, one woman for life. I pray that you would strengthen every single marriage represented here this morning. I pray that you would strengthen the marriages that, that will eventually come from, from the people that are their students here this morning or young adults that are not married, the singles. I pray that we would all give you honor as we seek to follow Christ in obedience. In Jesus' name, amen.